welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 20. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders at Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. I'm extremely excited about the episode of Hacker History we have to share with you today. In this episode, we will be recounting the story of one of the fastest propagating worms in history, which was powered by an exploit developed by none other than the NSA. It is a remarkable story that sees a 22-year-old Marcus Hutchins discover, deploy, and maintain a kill switch that some say saved the internet. We were lucky enough to have Marcus join us to tell the story, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. August 13th, 2016. An account called Shadow Brokers posts a tweet tagging major media outlets with a short message. Equation Group Dash Cyber Weapon Auction. The tweet links to a document on the website Pastebin. Attention government sponsors of cyber warfare and those who profit from it. How much you pay for enemy cyber weapons? Not malware you find in networks. Both sides, RAT and LP. Full state sponsor tool set. We find cyber weapons made by creators of Stuxnet, Dooku, Flame. Kaspersky calls Equation Group. Equation Group, a suspected arm of the NSA, linked to the Flame malware, and most famously the Stuxnet attack against an Iranian nuclear facility. One of the world's most powerful APTs with some of the most powerful cyber weapons ever built. We follow Equation Group traffic. We find Equation Group source range. We hack Equation Group. We find many, many Equation Group cyber weapons. You see pictures. As a U.S. government entity, Equation Group has it in their power to make the world more cyber secure. When they find a critical vulnerability in a popular technology product, they can work with the, probably, American company that provides the product, and collaborate to remediate the problem before malicious hackers find out. But they don't always do that. And at one crucial point in the mid-2010s, fatefully, they chose not to. Having discovered a critical, code-red, all-hands-on-deck kind of vulnerability in Windows, rather than inform Microsoft, they developed a weapon that could exploit it for their own purposes, their own offensive attacks but they didn't count on getting hacked themselves. We give you some equation group files free, you see. This is good proof, no? You enjoy. You break many things. You find many intrusions. What happens when an NSA-built cyber weapon falls into the hands of the entire criminal underworld? You end up with a virus like WannaCry. Friday, May 12, 2017, was supposed to be a day off for Marcus Hutchins. I was at home in uh, my house in Ophrakun. The 22-year-old woke up around 10 o'clock. From his bedroom in his parents' house, he logged into the cyber threat sharing platform where he'd been tracking the Motet botnet, presumably the most important thing happening in his life that day. Marcus was, by now, a confident botnet policeman most notably having personally stopped an offshoot of the Myria botnet. Scrolling through the forum that day, he noticed a few typical posts about ransomware attacks here and there. Nothing crazy, so he went out to pick up lunch with a friend. 
he got back around 2.30. It was, it was pretty much like all over the news at that point, and I'd seen some posts on the local cybersecurity message board as well. A ransomware attack was spreading around the world. Europol called it unprecedented in scale. 200,000 infected computers across 150 countries. So this one kind of stood out because it wasn't your standard, like, it hits a couple of systems. It was like, no, this thing is just, it's everywhere suddenly. So it was, it was very fascinating and, uh, like, a little bit scary. In Marcus's home country, it was tearing through the National Health Service, the healthcare system underpinning the entire United Kingdom. In one afternoon, computers at more than 600 doctors' offices and clinics and dozens of hospitals were penetrated. Up to 70,000 devices, including refrigerators storing blood, MRI machines, and surgical room equipment. Over 20,000 appointments, including surgeries, had to be cancelled across the UK. Many emergency room visitors with non-critical conditions were turned away, and ambulances carrying patients in dire circumstances had to be diverted. People were probably going to die because of this. Yet for all the chaos and damage it caused, for all of the legends told and retold in the years since, the WannaCry malware was actually remarkably simplistic. So this wasn't like super impressive. I was just like, oh no, someone's put this in ransomware. This being, well, you know. They'd just basically taken this NSA uh, exploit and kind of ham-fisted it into some malware. Like the malware itself was not very impressive. Like a sports car engine in a minivan, WannaCry was a very basic encryptor built with possibly the most dangerous of all the NSA software leaked by those shadow brokers, codenamed Eternal Blue. A vulnerability found by the National Security Agency in the uh, SMB protocol, which is the protocol used for computers on the network to talk to each other. File sharing. So let's say one computer at an organization wants to distribute a file to the others. It can utilize SMB, server message block. Anything a computer does for good reasons can be used for bad reasons, though. In this case, Eternal Blue hijacked this easy means of moving from one computer in a network out towards many to spread itself. So basically, uh, it would first get into the network from a usually a network-connected server uh, using the vulnerability, but then because the vulnerability was in both the client and server side of this protocol, it could also spread between machines within the network. So once it got onto the network, it would then jump between computer to computer until pretty much every Windows system on the network was trashed. In the time since the Shadow Brokers leak, Microsoft patched the SMB vulnerability Eternal Blue exploited but that would only help any computers that were already patched or computers that could be patched. Months before WannaCry, in the late summer of 2016, Vice Motherboard filed formal inquiries with 70 UK hospital trusts, asking whether the hospitals were still running Windows XP on their computer systems. 48 trusts replied to the inquiry. Of those, three denied the information on the grounds that, quote, it would jeopardize the health and safety of their patients, end quote. Of the remaining 45, 42 admitted that indeed they were still using XP, often in great numbers. 
like one healthcare group that ran 413 XP machines, the Children's Hospital that alone ran 1,290, or the London Trust that had over 10,000 of its computers actively running on the old operating system. Why is that bad? Because Microsoft stopped supporting Windows XP back in April of 2014, two and a half years prior. That meant that the software was receiving no more updates, even for critical security bugs, like the one triggered by Eternal Blue. And so for every day, hour, and minute that passed, WannaCry would spread itself to more networks and more unpatched computers within those networks, more hospitals and more companies around the world, unless somebody, somewhere, could stop it. Um, so I reached out to a friend uh, who goes by the name of Caffeine Online, and uh, uh, I, he basically is, was my go-to for, hey, I know there's a new malware sample, do you have it? And he just seemed to always have the latest malware samples, so I just reached out and uh, he gave me a copy. With his lunch on his desk, Marcus revved up an isolated virtual computer on his home server, replete with fake files to use as bait. He triggered the sample in this test environment and watched it go to work. Within moments, he noticed something. After arriving on a computer, but before actually encrypting any of its files, the malware pinged a seemingly random domain. On the face of it, this isn't particularly uncommon. Like little spies, once malware programs infect a target computer, they often open up a line of communication via a web address through which hackers can send even more malware or receive stolen data from the target computer. It's called command and control. Here's the thing, though. At the time, it's not so common now, but at the time it was common to just leave domains unregistered, and then they'd pick them up later because you can't suspend the domain that hasn't yet been registered. The hackers didn't register the domain as a defense mechanism. At the same time, that opened up a window for somebody like Marcus. If it's a free domain, someone's going to register it, so you've got to get there first. So we would just go and register them because it would give us control over the malware. At 3.08 p.m., Marcus registered the random WannaCry domain. His hope was that the investment might wrestle some of the control away from the hackers, allowing him to track the spread of the malware, or even sucking in some of its traffic to his own sinkhole server. It achieved much more than that. Shortly after registering the domain, Marcus got a message from another cybersecurity analyst asking for a sample of the malware. Marcus sent it over, but strangely, when the analyst ran the sample, it didn't actually encrypt any files. The same exact code Marcus had just run minutes earlier wasn't functioning on his colleague's machine for some reason. Something must have been off, but Marcus had more important things to focus on. Besides the hundreds of emails flooding his inbox from other researchers, analysts, and the media, his newly registered domain was being pinged thousands of times over from every corner of the earth. Canada to Tanzania, Peru to the Philippines. So many requests that the sinkhole server was nearing its maximum load. If the server maxed out, Marcus would lose control. And there was more bad news. According to one colleague, Registering that domain actually triggered something in the ransomware. In other words, they were contributing to more files being encrypted. Had all their work actually made the attack worse? 
WannaCry certainly wasn't slowing down. That much was clear. Marcus could see, from his sinkhole, all the new attacks triggering every minute. The answer came a few hours later when his colleague, Caffeine, forwarded him a tweet from another researcher. Quote, WannaCry propagation payload contains previously unregistered domain. Execution fails now that that domain has been sinkholed. End quote. Could it be? Maybe this is why his colleague couldn't actually run the sample. Marcus went back and tested it again, the same way he did the first time. Quote, Having heard to conflicting answers, I anxiously loaded back up my analysis environment and ran the sample. Nothing. I then modified my host file so that the domain connection would be unsuccessful and ran it again. Ransomware. Now you probably can't picture a grown man jumping around with the excitement of having just been ransomware, but this was me. End quote. By registering a website for the price of $10.69, Marcus Hutchins, 22 years old, still living in his parents' house, had managed to freeze the worst ransomware attack ever seen on the planet. You'd think that saving the world would have been enough, but the next morning it became abundantly clear that the job was far from over. Registering that domain stopped WannaCry from executing, but not spreading. Powered by the NSA's exploit, the virus continued to propagate around the world, creating millions of copies of itself. Copies that would activate and encrypt their host computers in a moment's notice if only Marcus Hutchins' domain went offline. Like Spider-Man in the subway, his sinkhole servers had been absorbing all the weight of all that traffic. Now, not all of that traffic was coming from WannaCry. It was hardly noticeable the first time it happened. Then came a second wave, this time far bigger, and a third even bigger than the last. Basically, I think it was like four or five servers that we were trying to keep online against just relentless DDoS attacks. Distributed denial of service. Something besides WannaCry was attacking his servers. It didn't seem to be the WannaCry hackers, though. Who else possibly could have wanted to undo all that progress and release WannaCry back into the world? Marcus peeled back the curtain and found an old friend. Maybe their motive was revenge. Maybe they just wanted to cause chaos. It was the Myria botnet, one of the networks that Marcus, before WannaCry, had been working to stop. The Myria hackers were back, this time with a surprise offensive. And it wasn't just like one group. It was like pretty much everyone and their dog was just trying to hit the server because they thought it would be funny. How much traffic could one sinkhole handle? How about half a million new infections per day? A fourth wave of DDoS came crashing in. Then a fifth. By the end, 20 gigabytes of data per second. It was just me and another company employee just pretty much working night and day, uh, like taking it in turns, like while one slept, the other would maintain the system. To help spread the load, Marcus's colleagues enlisted cloud servers at Amazon Web Services and a French provider called OVH Cloud. But the local French police noticed the onslaught of new WannaCry connections into and out of OVH, and assuming it was the work of the attackers, broke in and grabbed the machines, taking them back offline. It was, it was a very stressful week, and I think I slept uh, 
more than maybe five or six hours for the entire week. And that's not five or six per day, that's five or six for the entire week. Um, Yeah, so it's kind of a nightmare. It took a while until Marcus finally caught a break. It was a good week or so before uh, um, a friend of Cloudflare uh, basically very kindly stepped in and decided to take over. Cloudflare is a DDoS mitigation company designed for exactly such a situation as this. The uh, hosting of the platform, and they basically put it onto their CDN where uh, there's no way you're going to take that down. Even after WannaCry was defeated, through the combined efforts of Marcus, his colleagues, Cloudflare, law enforcement, and more, the threat still remained. What if the attackers, or any other hackers, simply re-released their malware without a kill switch? And what if, for any reason imaginable, those servers holding up that domain name failed? Even today, all those sleeping instances of WannaCry could spring back to life on any old unpatched computers. There's only so much one cybersecurity defender can do, though. It was nice to like finally get some sleep and not have to to worry about it. But then also like the adrenaline and the like, you know, kind of that feeling of just constantly having to watch over this thing was at least somewhat exciting. So it was kind of a little sad for the life going back to normal. But on the flip side, I did get some sleep. And that concludes another episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. This episode was written by the talented Nathaniel Nelson, narrated by me, Christopher Luft, and produced by the team at Lima Charlie. And of course, a very special thank you to Marcus Hutchins for sharing his story. We've been having a lot of fun putting this show together and would love to hear from you. Any criticisms, suggestions, or high fives can be sent to defenders at limacharlie.io. I would also like to thank you for listening in. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or a review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.